see you all here, especially uh, extended family members who have come. We uh, always good to see you. And for our guests here today, we appreciate you coming to visit. And uh, we trust that everyone will receive a blessing from God's word here this morning. I have a question for you this morning. Uh, it may seem simple on the surface, but yet uh, I think as we analyze it a bit, it will not be so simple. The question is, is what is more important, who we are or what we do? What is more important, who you are or what you do? It may sound simplistic on the surface, and yet in our culture, in the society we live in, performance is valued pretty highly. We all know that. You don't show up to work, you don't get a paycheck. Uh, if you don't do your schoolwork, you don't get a grade, and so performance is valued pretty highly. And I think back to a, a former presidency where the whole issue of performance versus character came up, and that was a debate that raged, it still rages today as we live in a postmodern society. Doesn't matter what a person is as long as their performance is up to our expectations, or is the opposite true? Now through history, the predominant viewpoint has been that what we do determines who we are. What we do determines who we are. In fact, you've probably heard the old adage, you are what you eat. Uh, that isn't a new school of thought, by the way. The Greek philosopher Aristotle put it this way, we are what we repeatedly do. We are what we repeatedly do. If you are familiar with TED Talks, T-E-D, you can get them on the internet on a lot of different subjects, but according to a recent TED Talk, he said that you are what you tweet. And so if you use Twitter, you might be that person, you are what you tweet. Uh, but each of these proclamations, while carrying a little nugget of truth, I suppose, it gets the core message of the gospel of Jesus Christ backwards. And of all people who got it right, the rock musician Frank Zappa came the closest. Do you remember Frank Zappa? All that means is that you're old. <laughs> I'm with you. He said this, you are what you is. You are what you is. In other words, it's not what we do that determines what we are, rather, who we are determines what we do, and that is the biblical paradigm. That is the biblical model we see. Who we are determines what we do. And that's why we're spending a few weeks this summer in the book of Proverbs. We're not going expositionally verse by verse, but we are using the launch pad of Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, to discover some of God's values. And here in this passage, they are stated negatively. And we are looking at the negative proclamation of God's value, and then we are flipping it and looking at the positive declaration of that value by God himself in the book of Proverbs. In this way, we get a little bit of a broad overview of this book of Proverbs, this piece of wisdom literature that has ministered to millions over the centuries and continues to minister to us. Proverbs is a tremendous book, and I've said this every Sunday. It is the most practical day-to-day -day book in all of the Old Testament. If you are not reading Proverbs, you are missing out on great practical advice for day-to-day -day living. In fact, the subtitle of this series is Vertical Awareness for Horizontal Living, and Proverbs does that for us. In fact, uh, one lady I talked to last week, she is in the, uh, in the practice of reading a chapter of Proverbs a day. 
so that every month she goes through the whole book of Proverbs, 31 chapters, she gets through it in a month. And it's a great exercise. I've done that in the past, and it is a blessing as you go through the book of Proverbs. But we come to Proverbs, and remember in the introduction a number of weeks ago, we talked about the purpose of the book of Proverbs. Because it seems to be a bunch of short, pithy sayings, Proverbs, obviously, and yet the purpose is declared in chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. And if you remember, if you've been with us, the purpose that's stated there by, the, by Solomon is that he would teach us moral discernment and discretion, and secondly, to develop mental clarity and perception. Solomon had a twofold purpose for this book, and Solomon was the primary writer used by God. There were others, of course. And the, the Proverbs were collected over two and a half centuries into book form. But in verse 2 of chapter 1, he talks about wisdom and instruction. Now, none of us wants to be known as a fool. In fact, that is, to this day, that is still a pejorative when somebody says, Oh, you fool. You know, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to be foolish. We don't want to be known as a fool. And in verse 2 of chapter 1, he combines the words wisdom and instruction. And actually, the Hebrew word for wisdom there can be translated skill. It's talked about skill for life or skillful living, if you will. And instruction means discipline. Instruction means discipline. There is no skill perfected without discipline. I would love to be able to play the piano, but I do not have the discipline to learn how. I keep thinking, if I just go over there, maybe it'll just come naturally, you know? But it won't, and I know that. I have a brother-in-law, Don's brother, Rick. Uh, He is a bow maker. A boyer is the technical gift. He makes recurve hunting bows and long bows. And I've watched him through the last probably four decades just encourage his skill by his discipline to be a good craftsman in that trade. And so without discipline, there can be no skill. And that's what Solomon is concerned about here in the book of Proverbs. You notice the passage that Wes read for us. It's set in the context of a father talking to a son. And it's the debate is in scholarly circles, was it really Solomon's son or was it just pupils that he had? And that goes on, we're not sure, even though he uses that picture of a father teaching a son. But for all of us, we are pupils, if you will, of the word. That's why you're here. I hope that's why you're here, that we are learning about the word. And so Solomon's concern that God placed on on him was with that we would have skill for living and the discipline to perpetuate that skill in our lives and in the lives of others. And we come today to these negative declarations here. It's interesting. I've been really struck in chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Uh, We talk a lot about God's infinite character. He is infinite. Otherwise, he is not God. He has no beginning and no end. The triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever were and forever will be. And that, you know, my mind cannot capture all of that. Whereas we are finite beings, we have a beginning, and yet we do not have an end. It's called everlasting life, but we do have a beginning in our biological frame. And yet God is infinite, and we talk about his infinite character of his love, grace, and mercy, those positive things, but we never think about or talk about God's infinite character of hate, of what is an abomination to him. And here Solomon 
defines for us in verse 16 of chapter 6, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And then he lists these seven things. The structure of the Hebrew language here means this list is not exhaustive. The sixth and the seventh wasn't that he forgot to add one. It's the structure and the grammar and syntax. He says this is a list, but yet it is not exhaustive. There are many other things in sin in our lives. But he talks about these abominations to him, and we've covered some of them. But these are God's values in negative form. And when you think about pleasing God, if that's your heart's desire, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have this innate desire built into us by the Holy Spirit of God that we want to please God. We do not want to displease him because we don't want to seem foolish, do we? We want wisdom. And so we must know what he values and what he cares about. What does he love? What does he hate? And here's a declaration of what he hates. And we've looked at the first three. In verse 17, he hates haughty eyes, which is a prideful look, which is simply uh, an expression of an inward character, isn't it? Prideful look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. We talked about that last week, about the issue of justice, about righteousness as a person. And today we come to a heart that devises wicked plans, a heart that devises wicked plans. Notice in this, there are five misused body parts in this list because then there's feet that run rapidly to evil. So eyes, tongue, hands, heart, and feet. And that was used as a mnemonic. So the people of that day, of Solomon's day, could memorize this passage and it would help them memorize it because they didn't have a paper book in their hands to read. And then there are two antisocial actions that he talks about. Uh, False witness who utters lies, verse 19, and one who spreads strife among the brothers. So these seven things are an abomination to God in the infinite character of his hate. Now, we often ascribe human emotion of hate to this, but this is God's declaration of in his pure righteousness, anything unrighteous cannot be in his presence. So these five misused body parts and two antisocial actions. But this uh, one today, heart that devises wicked plans. The Hebrew word for heart is used many, many times in the Old Testament, and then there's a Greek equivalent in the New Testament. The word heart, translated into English heart, is used many, many times. Here in Proverbs alone, there are 72 occurrences of the word heart in Proverbs. And so we will not exhaust those today. But that Hebrew word, for the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew, when they thought of heart and saw this word and heard it, they would not think of this organ, this pump in our chest primarily. That was not uh, in the foremost of their mind. Heart had to do with the immaterial part of man. And we use that figuratively today. You know, we talk about having a heartache or a joyful heart. And uh, so it was used figuratively in our language. Even sometimes when we hear the word heart, we don't think of this organ in our chest that keeps us alive. And so it was reference to the immaterial part of a person, basically the emotion, intellect, and will. The emotion, intellect, and will. And so as we come to Proverbs here, uh, Proverbs 27:19 to get back, to this whole issue is you are what you is, according to Frank Zappa. Uh, Proverbs 27, 19, I think is such a succinct little verse. Let me read it to you. As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. 
And that answers the question, what is more important, who we are or what we do? I think the message uh, by Eugene Peterson's translation says the mirror that reflects the face. He kind of contemporizes that as one's, one's life reflects the heart. The idea that uh, our outward being, our character is a reflection of what resides within our emotion, intellect, and will. That who we are in our immaterial part, not our physical part, the immaterial part is a reflection, is reflected outward into what we do. Uh, in Proverbs 2.2, 2, uh, this idea of the heart at the center of the catalog. It's interesting in Proverbs how many times Solomon mentions it, but Proverbs 2.2 2 tells the son to turn your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Proverbs 6.14, the paragraph just before our paragraph, talking about the wicked man who plots evil with deceit in his heart, he always stirs up conflict. So we come to this passage in, in verse 18, the heart that devises wicked plans. It's interesting that word devises or plans. It means creative calculations, creative calculations, which essentially means to calculate, to compute, as well as to plan, conceive, or invent. Uh, that kind of heart is an abomination to God. Uh, God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. As we look at the rest of Proverbs, other parts of Proverbs, like I said, there's over 72 references to the word heart in Proverbs. We're going to just look at a few of them very quickly. I would just encourage you in your sermon notes to jot down the, the, the verse if it uh, rings uh, in your ear. But uh, just listen to some of these references about how God hates and how he defines what this heart looks like. Uh, he, in chapter 4, verse 23, he says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Another declaration of the fact that you are what you is. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 20, Those who are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord, echoing out of chapter 6. But the blameless in their ways are his delight. Chapter 12, verse 8, a man will be commended according to his wisdom, but he who is of perverse heart will be despised. Who will be despised by? By God himself. Chapter 20, verse 12. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. Chapter 14, verse 30. The sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. A great picture of our physical health is related to our emotional, intellectual, and spiritual health. The heart of him, chapter 15, verse 14, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. Chapter 17, verse 22, a merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. Chapter 23, verse 17, do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. Chapter 23, verse 26, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Chapter 28, verse 25, he who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. So in our list of abominations or negative uh, characters and values of God, we see that the heart plays a central part in all of this. I was reading, uh, following up on our own election year here in the United States, uh, there was an election in the United Kingdom uh, last year also, 
And uh, we're tired of politics, I know this, but in case you missed it, there was a, uh, a headline that came out of the United Kingdom which read, Scotland's one-woman rubbish party wins seat in local elections. Yes, the rubbish party. I thought all political parties were the rubbish party, but evidently not. She actually, you can look this up online, she has a website even. And uh, in a vote that filled three seats on a local council, uh, her name is Sally Cogley, the woman behind the party. She came in second after the Scottish National Party candidate, and that was enough to win a seat on there. In fact, her motto was, vote for Sally for a better valley. And it really rings, you know, that's a good one. Uh, she has a website and her mission, here's her platform, to rid the local community of all types of rubbish from wasted resources to littering and to dog fouling. I like that. that you know, let's leave it up to the uh, United Kingdom. But her mission seems to be uh, faring as well as some of the other parties. British publications are keen to point out that the rubbish party won as many seats, won, in council and mayoral elections across England, Scotland, and Wales as much as the right-wing UK Independence Party did, which is quite large. And so this Sally Coghill, the rubbish party. But, you know, we sometimes have to look at the rubbish of our own hearts and have a desire, an agenda, a platform to say, God, change me. Change my heart because we are bent towards evil and evil plans. And so God's values in positive form. As we look at some of the references of these positive values, when you flip the value over from the abomination to what God values in a positive way, we see many references. Proverbs 2.2, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. There's, a, there's an implication here that it is an act of the will, that I am going to be receptive and want to receive wisdom and instruction and skill. Proverbs 2.10, for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Proverbs 3.1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Proverbs 3.3, 3, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of the heart. Proverbs 3.5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 4.4, 4, then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Proverbs 4.21, do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart about wise sayings. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 5.12, and you have said, how, have, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. There's that idea that we can spurn, we can de deny our engagement with what God is doing in our lives. Proverbs 6.18, or excuse me, 6.21, bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. Proverbs 6.25, or 7.3, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. And there are at least another 60 in the book of Proverbs references to the heart. The word pictures and the wise sayings in this book of Proverbs, especially by Solomon, make it clear that the imagination of our heart determines whether we will be creatively good or creatively evil. We will dream about good or we will dream about evil. Our imagination will be stirred up by the hope of heaven 
or by a momentary promise of blind desire. For the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that we have a new heart. Uh, the reference actually comes out of Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, where God promises to change the nation Israel. And there he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you from your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh, one that is sensitive to what God is doing. The heart of flesh is what we all need. Not long after the sinking of uh, the great steamship Titanic in 1914, the United States Congress convened a hearing to discern what happened in another uh, naval tra- tragedy that same year. In January of that year, in a thick fog off the Virginia coast, <clears throat> the steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel Nantucket and eventually sank. Forty-one sailors lost their lives in the frigid waters of the Atlantic in that event. Uh, while it was the captain of the Nantucket, his name was Osam Berry, who, who, who was arraigned on charges. Uh, in the course of the trial, the other captain, Captain Edward Johnson, was grilled on the stand for over five hours. During cross-examination, it was learned, as the New York Times reported, that Captain Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficiently true to run a ship and that it was the custom of masters in the coastwide trade to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the year he was master of the Monroe. The faulty compass seemed adequate for navigation, eventually proved otherwise. This realization partly explains the heart-rending picture that was reported in the news which said later the two captains met, clasped hands, and sobbed on each other's soldiers. Shoulders, excuse me. The sobs of these two burly seamen are a moving reminder of the tragic consequence of misorientation. The reminder for us is this. If the heart is like the compass, then we need to regularly calibrate our hearts, tuning them to be directed to our creator, to true north. We need to do that. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that you have used men like Solomon to write down your word and that you have protected it and superintended it throughout the centuries and that we have authoritative, authentic copies in our hands today in our own language. What a miracle that is in itself. We thank you for this morning for your word.